So Philippians 4, starting in verse 10 through the end of the book, uh, through, through verse uh, 23, Paul uh, is wrapping up his letter. And last week we kind of talked about uh, anxiety. We, we talked about uh, Paul's command to rejoice in the Lord. If you recall, he says in uh, chapter 4, verse 4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And then later down in verse 6, he says, Don't be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And we talked about uh, anxiety last week about uh, how Paul tells us that the key to dealing with anxiety is thanksgiving. The key to, to facing anxiety is to, is to give thanks to God. And he gives us those three different ways that we can do it through, through prayer. Uh, with, with prayer, with supplication, let your requests be made known to him. With thanksgiving, and he's told us that joy in Christ, it protects us from anxiety. It protects us from, from feeling worry and, and uh, being anxious over things uh, because we're reminded that we're already in Christ. We're already adopted. We've already been accepted. We have a right standing before the Father. And, and so this morning, Paul's going to speak to us a little bit further about one of the greatest causes of anxiety in our lives, and that is money. Now, Churches usually have a habit of either talking about money a lot or talking about it, like, not at all, ever. It's like you just pretty much ignore it, how we should treat money or deal with money or ever talk about money. Or it's like every week there seems like someone's talking about money. <clears throat> um, and so we want, to, we want to hear what Scripture says about money. And we want to approach it, you know, we teach uh, here through the Bible, book by book, verse by verse. So we kind of come to money when the Bible comes to money. Um, but before we hear about what Paul has to say about this, I want to kind of give you guys a little bit of background about what Scripture says about money. Um, and so to start off, I want to give you guys the understanding that money is neither good nor bad. First uh, Timothy 6.10 tells us it's not money that's bad, but it's the love of money. That's the root of all kinds of evil. Hebrews 13 uh, Verse 5 tells us that we should keep our lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So money isn't something that's good or bad. Money is, is a tool. It's neutral. Money, money is something that can be used wisely or it can be used unwisely. Now, I'm in a phase in kind of life where uh, I'm teaching my son about that very, uh, that point with everything that he has. What is, what is, what is the tool that you have in your hand intended for? You know, he'll, he'll be picking up a, a pencil or be picking up a butter knife and trying to use it to open something. And although it can be adapted to that, that's not what it's intended for. And when you use a tool for something that's not intended for, usually you end up getting hurt. Usually you end up misusing it and you end up injuring yourself. And so money is kind of something that can be used wisely or it can be used unwisely. It's something that's neutral. But there is a principle that governs money. It governs our, our finances and resources. And that principle is something that not only stands uh, in, uh, as the foundation to how we deal with money, but how we deal with all things that God has given us. And that principle is stewardship. So stewardship tells us that everything that, that we have belongs to God. 
Stewardship tells us everything that we have belongs to God, whether it be our lives, our time, our careers, um, our, our talents, our family, and even money. Everything that we have belongs to God. In John chapter 3, verse 27, John uh, responds to someone here, and he tells them a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. Everything that we've been given has been entrusted to us by God. You're not the owner of it. You just use it. It doesn't belong to you. You're just in charge of stewarding over it. We're stewards of what God has entrusted with us. He's the owner of all things, and we either use them for our glory or we use them for his glory. Deuteronomy 8 uh, tells us uh, how we kind of ought to... to, um, have this mindset in Deuteronomy 8 verse 17 it says beware lest you say in your heart my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth that's the attitude that we kind of often have when uh you know when we're dealing with things that we have it's ours it's our we've worked so hard to get it He tells us, beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. And then he says in verse 18, you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. So all things that we have are from God. They are given to us to steward over. They're not ours, we just use them. We just use those things and we can either use them wisely for his glory, or we can use them unwisely and sinfully for our own glory. And so in our culture, the way that we deal with money, the way that we, uh, we handle it is money is often a way that we measure success, right? It's a way that, that we uh, determine whether you're happy or not. If you have a lot of money, you, sh- you should be happy. You, if you don't have a lot of money, you look at other people and you're like, oh, they must be so happy. They have a ton of money. Money m- must bring this, this contentment. But Paul tells us that there's another way to live. And this morning we're going to talk about two things that he, uh, two main things that he kind of mentions here. He gives us first the secret of being content. He'll kind of speak to us about that. And then the second thing he's going to talk to us about is how joy protects us from our possessions. So let's start off uh, in verse 10 with uh, Paul's introduction to the secret of being content. And the first thing that he wants to point out to us is that if we want to be content, we have to uh, understand who we are. And he and he and he does this through the lens of money. So verse 10, he starts off and says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. So why did Paul rejoice here? He says, I I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. Uh, He's not rejoicing in the Philippians, and he's not rejoicing in the gift that they've given him, because that's that's the point of kind of uh, this section of the letter. He's writing in response to the Philippians' gift. Epaphroditus, who who was probably the one who delivered this letter to Paul as Paul's in prison, he brought this gift, this financial, uh, this uh, great financial gift for Paul. And as he brought that to him in uh, his jail cell, there he delivered this, and, and Paul was so thankful for that gift, and, and he's rejoicing over that. And he's writing this letter to kind of tell them, hey, thanks, I'm so thankful for your support, I'm thankful for uh, your faithfulness to provide. 
But he's also wanting to communicate something to them. He's, and he wants to commu- communicate to them that joy is, his joy in the Lord produces contentment. His joy in the Lord is greater than money. And that's kind of what he starts off with here. He says he rejoices in the Lord. He's recognizing that the Lord has been faithful to him. Not that, uh, not that it was just the Philippians uh, who were nice to him and they gave him something. Paul's not saying, hey, I'm happy with you because you guys gave me money. Their partnership goes beyond that. He, he is rejoicing in the Lord because the Lord was faithful to provide for him. The, he can rejoice because the Philippians were faithful to give to him. And in that, their generosity mirrors that of God the Father giving his son. Their generosity reflects the gospel. We'll get to that in a little bit. So Paul says that the Philippians, they revived their concern for him. Their obedience to give to Paul, their obedience to support him, leads to Paul rejoicing greatly in the Lord. Now, their gifts were were a tangible demonstration. It showed when they gave money, it it, it showed Paul that they really do care. It showed Paul that like, hey, I know that these guys are behind me for sure. But now when Paul writes back, he doesn't want them to be confused that like he didn't think they were concerned about them before, right? And so he, he, he will speak to that. He'll, he'll assure them that like, hey, I know you guys. I know you guys were, were okay. I, I know you guys were concerned for me. That's what he says. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. He gets it. He's like, I know you were concerned. Just because I got the money doesn't mean like that now I believe you were concerned. I get that you were concerned for me the whole time. But he said they didn't have opportunity. And so if you want to be a giver, if you want to, to give and you want to mirror this gospel generosity that Paul tells us that we ought to have, you have to have opportunity. Now, why did the, did, uh, the Philippians not have opportunity to support Paul? Why were they unable? Well, Paul could have been unable to receive their gifts for a number of reasons. Uh, We don't know the exact situation. It could have been their extreme poverty where they weren't, uh, they they just didn't have the resources to give to him. Uh, In 2 Corinthians, it kind of speaks to their, their extreme poverty. But yet, even in their extreme poverty, they still gave there. So it could have been that. It could have been that Paul was in transition between uh, cities that he was jailed in. He was imprisoned, uh, you know, in Caesarea. He was imprisoned in in these different cities, and they could have been transferring him. Uh, You know, that's just, we can't give you money if we don't know your address. We don't know where you're at. It's pretty hard for us to do that. And so if we're going to be a giving people as the gospel instructs us to, we have to be on the lookout for opportunities to give. The point here that Paul's making is the Philippians, they were constantly looking for opportunities. They were aware of opportunities to give. They weren't apathetic about their resources. They, they weren't just like, oh, if somebody asks me. But they were aware. They were, they were having this mindset about how they ought to use their money wisely and steward over it uh, wisely. So he goes on in verse 11, and he tells us here... Uh, about his situation, about what he's dealing with. And the thing that he's going to point out to us here is that joy in Christ enables us to be content. This is important. Joy in Christ enables us to be content. He starts off in verse 11. He says, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Paul says he's not in need. 
but he has a secret. He's learned something. He's learned to be content. I want you to notice what he says there, okay? And get out of your minds right now what you think it means to be content. Because when we think about content, let's just be honest. That just means that you're, uh, you're indifferent, right? When you're like, oh, I'm content. Someone's like, you want something? Oh, I'm content where I'm at. It doesn't mean that you're, like, you're totally happy and satisfied with where you're at. When we say that, we, we confuse these things. We take it to mean that it's indifference or we have a conscious decision uh, to have a willingness to get through the situation. Like, I really don't like it, but like, you know, I'm okay. I can be okay. I can get through this. That's kind of the way that we treat the word contentment, right? He's like, when you say, ask someone if they're content, it's like, you know, everyone's thinking like things could be better. Of course, things could always, you know, things could always be better. There's always like an upgrade that we're chasing after. But Paul says, I'm content. I'm completely satisfied. I'm at rest here. He, he's not in the situation, whatever situation that he's in, he's completely uh, at rest. He's completely satisfied. He's not looking for, how do I get out of this? How can I upgrade my situation? Uh, you know, how, how can I just have the attitude that, like, I can get through this? He says, I'm content. I'm completely satisfied. Now, he tells us here that he's learned in whatever situation to be content. This wasn't just a natural feeling that he, you know, was like, oh, all of a sudden, Paul's just like this has this natural desire to be okay in whatever situation. This is something that, that has to be learned. He's learned to be content. He, he didn't learn this lesson easily. He didn't learn it quickly. I mean, Paul gives us a list in, when he's speaking to the Corinthians about like all the difficulties and situations. He's like, you know, I was stranded in the deep. I was shipwrecked. I was beaten. Like he's been in so many situations that like he's had opportunity to exercise this. He's had opportunity to practice this contentment for the Lord to minister to him. And so it's not something that just like a light switch. He's like, I'm just going to decide and turn it on and be there immediately. But rather it came for Paul over the course of many difficult circumstances. Now, we learn contentment when we submit ourselves to Christ in every situation. That's what Paul is getting at here. He says, whatever situation I'm in, I've learned to be content. And he, he, he tells us that when we have joy in Christ, when we, when we fix our eyes upon him, it enables us to be content. Not just to be indifferent and be like, oh, I'll get through this because I have Jesus. Good consolation prize. I'll be okay because I have Jesus. You know, I can make it through. But he is content. He's completely satisfied. Now, he elaborates a little bit more on some of his situations in verse 12. He says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Paul learned to be content when he lived in poverty. He had great, he had like these, these seasons of great need. You know, if you are a traveling missionary, things aren't going to be plush for you all the time. You know, you're not going to have like servants and live in this, you know, massive house and have people waiting on you hand and foot. Paul's like, you know, I've been out, I've slept under trees, I've been in prisons, I've been beaten. I know what it's like to to starve. I know what it's like to to be hungry. He says, I've been brought low. When he says brought low, that word means he, he has been in a place of humility. 
What Paul's telling us here is the life that he's living mirrors the life uh, of Christ as explained in the Christ hymn in chapter 2, verse 5, uh, 5 and 6, you know, where Christ, he, he didn't consider his own advantage, but he, instead he humbled himself, taking the form of a servant. Paul says, I've, I've mirrored my pattern, I've patterned my life after Christ, and I've done the same thing here. I've been brought low. He had need. He faced hunger. When he says he faced hunger, he, he actually means hunger. Not like, you know, when we get done with church, we're like, man, I'm so hungry. Where are we going to eat? Paul's like, I haven't eaten for like days and days and days. Not to my own choice. Now, in the Roman prison system, prisoners had to buy their own food. If you didn't buy your own food, you didn't eat. You had to pay for your own medical care. Paul needed a doctor. Right? We know he's, he's spoken of that. He needs someone to take care of him. In, in that system, you were often buried. In, uh, the, the prisons were kind of these rocks that were carved out and were like these holes in the ground. And the, the entr- entrance to it was the size of a manhole about. And you were kind of lowered into there and that was it. You were like by yourself. So there wasn't like plumbing. There wasn't like, oh, let's have a place to like drain all the sewage. There, that didn't exist. You didn't have a toilet in there. So you, if you wanted someone, if you wanted your, your, uh, your cell to be clean, you had to pay someone to do it or you had to have someone who would be willing to come and serve and do that for you because you weren't getting out. And often, some, uh, in one city specifically, I forget exactly which one, but, but uh, some of these cells were often placed beneath uh, the marketplace. So you would have like animals coming over and uh, you know, there'd be like rotten fruit and everything falling into your, into your cell. Paul says, I know what it's like. I've been in poverty. I've experienced this. And I've learned to be content. You think you got it bad? Paul had it bad. But he learned the secret of contentment. But Paul also learned to be content with living in abundance. Which kind of sounds weird, right? Because you're like, I'm bankrolling. How could you not be content? Like, life is easy. You know, I'm going to pay all my bills. You know, I'm hungry. I'm going to go get something. You know, some people are, like, so rich that, like, you know, they want a Starbucks and they pull up and they just park, like, right in the red curb and they're like, whatever, $65 coffee, you know, I'll just get a ticket for it, that way I don't have to go park. You know, some people just, like, the way that they, like, some people have so much money they don't even know what to do with. And so it sounds a little bit weird that you would need to have contentment when you're, when you're bankrolling, when you're prosperous, and Paul's not even speaking of like this excessive, you know, amount of money. He's just saying, like, I have more than I need. Not just like, you know, I have money that I can do whatever I want with. <clears throat> but it's something that is important for us to recognize. It's not the case that just because you have a lot of money, because you're living in abundance, a season of, of uh, you know, blessing financially, it doesn't mean that you're going to be able to be content in that. Ecclesiastes 5.10 tells us, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. Which means that you have wealth, you're not going to be satisfied. If your focus is on that, you're going to get more, you're going to figure out how you can get more of it. And then you're going to try to go to the next level, and then the next level. He's, uh, Solomon says there, this is also vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There's no contentment there with the person who's just, who's just living in abundance, 
Just riches don't satisfy, he tells us. Uh, in 1 Timothy 6, <clears throat> uh, it says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And so when you're living in abundance, we have this natural desire to covet. You have this natural desire to acquire material things. And Paul says, I, I've learned that I can have material things, but those things don't have to be my, my reason for my joy. I can, I can have material things, but those things will not control me. Those things will not make me greedy because of the joy in Christ that I have. Paul says, I can, I can have material things, but often what happens when you get material things? You've got to protect those so no one else will take them. You've got to like, you know, put up your guard, and you've got you to build a fort around all the things that you have so no one else will come, and then you're always on alert about who's going to come and get you and who's going to take your stuff from you. Paul says, I don't have to give in to the anxiety that that brings because of my joy in Christ. And so Paul says he's learned to be content while in poverty and in prosperity. He, 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 it's, it's an amazing statement to find that balance, right? I mean, it's just like Paul has learned to be content when he has nothing and when he has more than what he needs. When he's in the craziest situation, he's completely satisfied at rest. Not just willing to get through it, but he's at rest. It's a crazy statement to hear that. It's, it's kind of like watching an amazing magician, right? You ever watch an amazing magician? You see, like, some of the crazy videos on YouTube or you see someone in person and you, they do, like, this trick right before you and they're, you're watching them uh, set up their trick and they're, they're drawing you in and then, and then right when it comes to the moment where, where all of a sudden you see the magic happen right before you, you see the illusion and your mind is blown and then you're just like, no way right? You just, your, your mind is shocked when you see like this crazy trick go down. And then what's the next question? How'd you do that? How'd you do that? How, there's no way, how did that go down? That's what Paul's telling us here. He's, he's, he's laying this foundation so that way we see all the things and then our question should be, wait, how? How did you learn to be content in poverty and in prosperity? How did you learn this? And that's what he says there. His exact, uh, the exact words that he uses, I've learned the secret. When you know a magic trick, when you know a really closely guarded one, there's people who know and people who don't know. And if you know the secret, you're on the inside. But if you don't know the secret, it's like, no, you're on the outside. But Paul's secret here, he says, I've learned the secret. Paul's secret is a secret that's out in the open. He says, you want to know? Come in close. I'm going to tell you. It's not something that's, you know, really secretive, but it's something that is difficult to apply. It's out in the open for everybody to know. So here he tells us the secret. Verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's a secret. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul's contentment in, in every situation that he experiences flows out of his life in Christ. Okay? You, just to also kind of set you guys straight a little bit, this verse isn't like a super Christian verse. Like, you can do whatever you want because Christ strengthens you. Like, this isn't, this isn't like a, you know, 
this verse isn't like spiritual uh, steroids where you're like, I can do whatever, put it in me, because Christ strengthens me. Paul's saying this in the context of like, I'm able to be content in whatever situation. I can, do, I can do all things. I can, I can experience huge seasons of prosperity. I can experience huge seasons of poverty. I can have food in abundance or I can have lack. I can be, be well-fed or I can be hungry. He can be content in every situation of life because Christ strengthens him. He can do all things through him who strengthens Paul. He can do all things. He can accomplish all, situ- all, all, all um, circumstances. He can overcome any situation because Christ strengthens him. Because the joy of the Lord is our strength. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Paul's greatest desire is to know Christ. His pursuit of Jesus as his ultimate and fully satisfying treasure, it sets him free from, from depending upon himself. It sets him free from depending upon others. Jesus will meet all of his needs. Jesus is the one who who completely satisfies. Now, Paul tells us that we're not going to learn contentment by gaining experience in these circumstances, right? You just think, okay, Paul went through a lot of experiences. He, he, He went through all these difficulties of life. And the only way that you're going to learn to be content in them is by going through them. And you're going to kind of learn what they feel like. And you're going to, you're going to learn to, to adapt to them. And next time you're going to be ready. It's not about the circumstances. It's about depending upon Christ in those circumstances. And so Paul's not saying, you know, it, Paul's not saying the circumstances, as you go through them, you're going to figure out what they're like and you're going to know how to act. Paul's saying when you go through those, you're going to learn to depend on Christ more and more and more. You don't need to learn about the circumstances. You need to learn about Jesus. Jesus is the main thing. Jesus is his greatest joy, his desire, his treasure. And you want to know more about Jesus. You want to learn when you're in those circumstances that instead of looking around and being like, how am I going to get out of this? You run to Jesus more quickly. Each time you experience him, you run there again and again and again. You learn more of what it's like to run to the cross. Now this, for some people, probably could seem like a little bit of a letdown. Like, how do I be content in every situation? Well, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. You know, it's like, that's not the secret I was looking for. I was looking for something else. But this secret that Paul tells us here about having joy in Christ, being able to overcome all things because of your joy in Christ, it makes you invincible. If the greatest thing that you care about, if if your ultimate desire and ultimate treasure is Christ... It's something that cannot be shaken. It cannot be taken away from you. You know, if you place your joy, your your treasure in earthly things, a robber comes in, he steals, kills, destroys, that's gone. Your joy is gone. Someone comes in and takes what you've been building your kingdom upon, all of a sudden your joy is gone. You have a tragedy in your family. All of a sudden, your joy is gone. But Paul says, my joy, the greatest thing that I care about is Jesus. The only thing that I really want to know, the only thing that, the the thing that's my greatest desire is is Christ. It makes us unable to, to withstand the loss of all things. You know, Paul said to live is Christ and to die is gain. 
Why? Well, because to be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. So Paul says, the greatest thing that I desire is Jesus. And so if you want to kill me, you're only going to bring me to my greatest desire. You're only going to just be like, okay, here's what I actually want. You're going to put me right before Christ. You can't take that away from me. His secret is that he's not building his life upon earthly things, but rather upon the faithfulness of Christ, upon who he is, upon his character and his love for us. He understands that he is adopted and accepted before Jesus. So having joy in Christ, it enables us, it strengthens us to stand against the world. And it's awesome because then we can be a bit reckless. Right? It's great when you can be a little bit reckless and not really worry so much when, when Jesus is your chief desire because nobody can snatch us out of his hand. You can kind of go through life, you know, in a little bit more of a reckless sense. And like, oh, I don't really know what's... I don't have to pay attention so closely to all these other things because the greatest thing that I want is Jesus. I don't have to be worried about all these things in my peripheral vision. Joy in Christ, knowing him... The joy of the Lord being Paul's strength is his secret. He can do all things through Christ who strengthens him. He can overcome any situation. He can deal with anything because of that great truth. Now he goes on in verse 14 to talk about how this joy enables us. When we we give, when we have joy in Christ, it enables us to be protected from acquiring things here on this earth. Joy in Christ protects us from our possessions. Because what tends to happen is you acquire possessions, but then those possessions end up possessing you because you end up trying to protect them. So Paul says this joy, it protects us from our possessions. He says in verse 14, it was kind of you to share my trouble. Paul's speaking to this partnership that they had. He says, you guys were willing to give sacrificially. You weren't controlled by your possessions because you were compelled by the gospel. Look at verse 15. And you, Philippians, know your, uh, yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. So Paul says, here's this case now. I'm going to give you this case. I'm going to, I'm going to break down for you why you guys are so generous. Because you, your, your generosity, it demonstrates uh, the, the gospel. It demonstrates this gospel conduct. Now, let me break down for you what Paul's talking about here in this giving and receiving. Let's go rewind all the way back to the Old Testament uh, and talk about Old Testament giving just quickly. This is like really the snapshot, okay? In Old Testament giving, the Old Testament law required the people of Israel to give a tithe of their income to the temple. You know, we'll call it the church for now. It required, a t- it required you to give a tithe, and a tithe just means a tenth. You were required by Old Testament law to give a tenth of your income to the church or to the temple. Uh, now, that was distributed in uh, Numbers 18.21. We hear that uh, the Lord instructs Moses 
To the Levites, I have given every tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service that they do, their service in the tent of meeting. So the tithe, that that tenth that was given from every family, was given to the temple for the use of the Levites, those who, were, who didn't inherit any land. They were the priests who, who ran the temple and they oversaw all the sacrifices and, and all of the things kind of surrounding that. And so that money went to them to support them because they didn't get any land, they didn't get anything else. So that enabled them to eat and uh, it was just a practical support. Now, any giving beyond that would be a free will offering. You could give beyond that. Your, your contribution beyond that 10% would be something that would be in a response to God's goodness. You know, you're, you get maybe a, an especially great crop and you're just like, Lord, I'm so thankful for how much you've blessed. I want to give above what's required of me. I want to give out of, out of this, this great love in my heart. I want to sacrifice, you know, all of this, uh, this extra crop that I have where I want to, to give of my livestock. So there's a free will offering that's kind of broken down beyond that. It's a response to God's goodness. Now, in the New Testament, we use the Old Testament model kind of as a, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, we kind of use it as a, as, a, as a rough guideline. A lot of times we just kind of adopt that because it's a, it's a standard that God set, and we really like to have rules so we can say we kept the rules, right? It's the little legalist in all of us where it's like, How much do I have to give so I can just do that and then I can check it off? But the New Testament guidelines are a bit uh, more vague, and they're purposefully vague to reveal our hearts. The New Testament guidelines, uh, without going too much into into the scripture uh, behind them, I will give you three quick points about how New Testament giving ought to operate. It It should first be cheerful. You should give with the right attitude. You should be a cheerful giver what you've decided in your heart. That means don't show up and then all of a sudden be like, oh, you know, the message was on tithing, so like I should actually give extra today because I'm, you know, swayed by that. Paul's, <clears throat> Paul's telling us there uh, in that letter that you should decide, you should be a cheerful giver. It should come out of, out of uh, you know, your thanksgiving, wanting to respond to the Lord. Secondly, it should be sacrificial. It shouldn't just, you know, if you make $10 billion, you shouldn't just tithe like the smallest amount. He doesn't attach like a 10% number to it per se, but it's a rough guideline that we kind of use. It should give, you should give sacrificially. And when you're doing that, you're recognizing that God is the one who's given you what you have. You're recognizing that he's entrusted you with it. Instead of saying, this is all mine, you're saying, I can give because I know that God has given to me. Sacrificial giving. The third thing is that it should just be regular, regular giving. Happens with uh, what, whether that's on a, you know, w- with whatever your rhythm of life is. You know, if it's like every two weeks with your paycheck or whatever you decide, there's not like a, a system in scripture that's like, it has to be like on this day and on this day. But it's whatever your rhythm of life is, whatever, uh, however it works out for you. So those are the, the kind of three guidelines. It has to be cheerful, sacrificial, and irregular. Now, within that, we see, uh, within the New Testament church, we also see that there should be church support. So that's what's kind of happening here, what Paul's kind of speaking of. In 1 Timothy five seventeen, he says, Let the elders who rule well 
be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So that includes Paul. He says, I'm, I'm one who I labor in preaching and teaching. I'm there planting churches. And then he says, he gives a backup scripture to kind of uh, come alongside and reinforce it. He says in uh, 1 Timothy 5.18, For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. That means, you know, when the, when the ox is out in the field running through there, don't put the bag so he can't eat it. Just let him eat a little bit as he's going along. You know, give him some food. He's working hard. Give him some food. as he's as, Let him eat whatever's on the ground in front of him as he's moving forward. Uh, and then he finishes in verse 18. He says, the laborer deserves his wages. You work hard, you should get paid. That's what he's saying. Uh, and Paul's speaking in the context of, uh, he says here, those who labor in preaching and teaching. So Paul's saying, this is, this is me. Now, so what's going on here? What's Paul speaking of in verse 15 and 16? Well, in the founding of the church of Philippi, Paul tells us that no other churches partnered with him financially. He went there, he planted this church in Philippi, a bunch of people got saved, the church started, but nobody else got behind him. He's, he's, the Philippians were the only ones. They were the ones who were generous from the beginning. Paul says, no other church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except only you. And then he goes on, even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Now, in 2 Corinthians, we kind of have a little bit of corroboration about the, the Philippian church's uh, generosity. He speaks in 2 Corinthians 11. Paul says here of, of this mindset that no one else gave. Paul says, I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. Paul says, other people, Corinthians, other people paid your bill. Because you guys didn't support the work that was happening here among you guys. Other, another church had to pay your bill. I, I robbed from them. That money that should have gone towards them, it went towards you guys. He says, and when I was with you and I was in need, I did not burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. Those are the Philippians, right? Philippi is within the region of Macedonia. They supplied. The Philippians were so fired up about the gospel that they wanted to contribute to the furthering of the gospel. They're like, we like what we heard. We like what's happening in our church. We, we understand what's happening here, and we want to give, give, give to see more people experience Christ. So they got behind Paul. They supported Paul as he went out. Paul says that they even gave again and again, even when he went to Thessalonica. It was basically like Paul was like walking in. And he's, he walked into Thessalonica and, and he needed money. And the Philippians were like, we'll pay for it. We'll, we'll totally pay for it. We want to see a work happen there. And then he's like, we're running out of money. You guys should, you know. And then they were like, we'll pay again. They're like, where else do you want to go? We'll pay anywhere you want to go. We will come behind the work of the gospel. And we want to see a work accomplished. So we will keep contributing. We will keep praying. We will keep sending resources. We will do whatever we have to do because we value the gospel. We see what's happening. Now, when the Philippians gave, it demonstrated the gospel in that the Father has given generously to us, ultimately through the gift of his Son. Now, here's what I want you guys also to see. The Philippians, they gave generously, but there were also those who didn't give, right? Paul says there's a ton of places that didn't give, people who didn't give. Check this out. This is crazy. When you don't give, 
when you don't give, when you don't contribute, you help others. Isn't that nuts? You help others. When you don't give, you help others. What I mean is, you give opportunity, and God's going to raise up others in your place. Okay? Just because you don't want to give, just because a church doesn't want to give, it doesn't mean that it's like, oh, well, that's, that's it. That's the end of it. Someone else will be raised up in their place. The, the Thessalonians weren't equipped. The Philippians were like, we'll pay. We'll pay. When they didn't give, it, it gave opportunity for the Philippians to give. And so all of the work, all of the fruit of the ministry of Thessalonica, that belongs to the Philippians because they paid for it. All of the work that was accomplished in all of the churches that Paul went around to, in the Corinthian church, the Philippians bankrolled all of those things. They believed in the gospel. They wanted to see it accomplished. That's fruit to their account. So when you don't give, it helps others. It doesn't help you because you don't get the blessings. The blessings get passed on to others, right? What happened? Paul didn't get supported by other churches, did God just be like, oh, sorry, Paul, we're not going to do this thing about, like, the New Testament, and we're not going to start churches anymore because, like, we can't find anyone to pay? No. The Lord raised up the Philippian church and just said, like, they're going to pay for it. They want to pay for it. They want to receive the fruit of this ministry. Right? This happened before this also. Right? Jesus, when he came on the scene, God sent his own son, who would have the most profitable ministry in the whole world, ever in the history of humanity you think you would want to get behind him but what happened his home base nazareth they didn't want him prophet has no honor in his town so what did he do he moved his home base to capernaum and they got to experience the blessing of having jesus live in their city and have all of you know i mean there's so many blessings to having that not only eternal fruit but just like all the the temporal stuff of like people coming to want to stay there to see jesus and meet with jesus like all this crazy stuff all because they were willing, you know, because Nazareth wasn't willing. They were like, no, you don't have any honor here. We're not going to recognize you. So Jesus said, I'll go somewhere else. I'll go to Capernaum. So giving here is important because it reveals the state of the heart. <clears throat> Paul says in verse 17, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. In, uh, in Matthew 6, Jesus said, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where you're investing, when you're, the things that you're giving to, that's going to reveal your heart. Are you giving to yourself, or are you investing in the kingdom of God? Paul says here in verse 17, My motive uh, is not money. I don't seek a gift. I'm not writing to you guys to tell you this because I need money. I'm telling you this because I seek fruit from your life. I want you guys to give because it reveals your heart. It shows that you're generous. It shows that you belong to Christ. It shows that you believe the gospel. So Paul says, this isn't in my self-interest. This is in your interest that I'm writing these things. When we give, when we give sacrificial gifts, it produces spiritual growth within those who give. And practically, it helps those who receive. So, Paul says about this gift that they've given, 
I have received full payment, verse 18, and, and, uh, and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So Paul says, I got all the money. I, everything you guys sent, I got it, and it was more than enough. He, he, in fact, he says it two times. He says, I've been filled to overflowing here. I've, I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied. He's made sure that they got it. Like, I have more than enough. I'm not asking for any more. I just want you guys to keep giving. Just have that mindset. Have that mindset of generosity. I have more than enough. So Paul says, I got everything. He's filled to overflowing. He's completely satisfied and overwhelming. He's in a season of abundance with this. He's living in poverty in this jail cell, but he has financially more than what he needs. And then he does something very kind for the Philippians. He, he ties this together with uh, these religious, uh, with a religious context that they would, they would be aware of. He says that these gifts that they sent are a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable, and they're pleasing to God. Each of those words, those phrases, was carefully selected because it has a long history within their context. He, he, he's saying that these things that were given, they were, it was a spiritual act of worship. You guys gave a fragrant offering. He's elevating their, their contribution to that of something that was known to be pleasing to God. He, he says that you guys have given a, a sacrifice that is acceptable, that, that God has received. It has lined up with the type of giving that God gives to us. And it is pleasing to God. And so when we give, when we give in this way, it is ultimately pleasing to God. So they've done two things. They've provided more than enough for Paul, practically, and they've worshipped with their finances. They've presented sacrifices that are pleasing to God. So lastly, we wrap up in verse 19 with this. God blesses those who give. He blesses those who give. Now, conditionally here, Right? This isn't just like anybody who gives, whatever, with any attitude, any time. You, know, you have to fall within those categories, that mindset, that ideas, the ideas that we've talked about. He blesses those who give. In verse 19, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. So Paul says, Because God has provided so abundantly for me, through you, God's going to do the same for you. You guys have given so generously, and the Lord will provide for you. He will supply every need of yours. Every need, not every want or whim or desire. Oftentimes, that's what we kind of want it to be. Like, I need a flat screen. <laughs> it's like, you don't need a flat screen. You need to eat. <laughs> My God will supply every need of yours. Paul expects God to act on, his, on the Philippians' behalf uh, much like he has acted on Paul's behalf through the work of the Philippians. He is going to supply all of their needs. And when he speaks of this, uh, uh, this word needs, it means all, uh, uh, any need, whatever it would be, material need, a spiritual need, uh, uh, emotional need, anything. He's going to supply all of your needs. Everything that you could possibly want is found in him. 
He will supply every need according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. God's provision will be according to his riches, which includes his timing, right? He will do it when the timing is right. It's not our time, but his time. He's going to supply that for that need. And he's already demonstrated this at the cross. Uh, 2 Corinthians 8-9 speaks of this context of giving, but, uh, of giving financially, but it talks about how God has already done this through Christ. In 2 Corinthians 8-9, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. The Lord will meet your need. He has met it. He has taken on uh, our poverty and given us his riches. He will meet our needs according to his riches, according to the supply that he has. And God's supply does not lack. He's not like running low. It's not going to run out like, I better get it quick before it runs out. God will meet our needs with what we need in the method that we need it, in the timing that we need it. So we need to not force it, but we need to be content in whatever situation. And when we have need, he will see that need and meet that need for us. But not only will God provide for those who give upon this earth, but there's more. Right? Could there be more? Jesus said, lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. Right? We already talked about that. When we invest in the work of God here upon the earth, we lay up for ourselves treasure in heaven. So when you're stewarding wisely over not just your money, but all things that God has given to you, everything that you've been entrusted with, you're laying up for yourself treasure in heaven. And that's the type of treasure that you want to have. It's the best investment that you could ever make. <clears throat> now, if you, if you wanted to make some sort of monetary investment, you could go and you could put your money in a savings account. And, you know, I was, I was looking into it, and you're, the maximum, like, rate right now for a savings account is 0.9%. Not even 1%. You get a 1% return on your money. 0.9, if that. <clears throat> um, however, if, if you're brave enough to try the stock market, and you invested in, say, something like IBM in, in like, 1970-whatever, when they first had their initial launch of their stock, your value today, your investment, whatever you invested there, will have doubled nine times. Nine times. That's pretty good, right? Same thing. I couldn't, I couldn't really think of a stock that had, had uh, gone up more than, uh, than nine times. I... I was like thinking about all sorts of options. Nine times seems like your maximum investment if you don't lose money, right? Because no one can trust the stock market. But with Jesus, he multiplies it by 100. 100 return, 100-fold return. It's crazy, right? Here's what happens. Mark uh, 10, 29, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands 
with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. It's the best investment plan you could, you could sign up for. You invest in the kingdom of God, you invest with Christ, and you get a hundredfold return. Right? And so Jesus is, is he's saying, won't you come and invest in me? I'm the best type of investment that you could make. It's, he says, I'm the one that will, I will return to you a hundredfold. That relationship that you have with me will blow away any other investment because I'm the one that will truly satisfy. It will be a hundredfold return in what you get from me, in, in, in how we commune together and fellowship together, how I see you face to face and we, and, and we have this sweet time of, together. As I see you through seasons of poverty and seasons of abundance, that hundredfold return will be there in that, in that I'm walking you through that I'm something that can be can never be taken away. It's a stark contrast. And it's no wonder Paul finishes, you know, here in verse 20 with a response of worship. Right? He, he says, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. He's like, this is the best investment plan ever. It's awesome. We do this and we get to know him and enjoy him. And God will supply every need according to his riches. And his riches are vast. They never lack. And he finishes with final greetings in verse 21. He says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So Paul just gives these final greetings. He's, he's throwing it out there to everybody. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. Remember, he's speaking to unity. He was speaking, he, he's speaking to the idea that he wants them to be united. No division. Everybody. Everybody gets a greeting. Not only the people who aren't. Uh, anybody who's not fighting, you get a greeting. Everybody who's in the doghouse, you know, work it out. Then I'll get to you next time. Paul says, everybody gets a greeting. I love you guys. I want to see you guys blessed. The brothers who are with me greet you. So he's speaking to this idea of unity. And then he says, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Remember, Paul has been used by God during his imprisonment. Those who are in the household of the emperor, the gospel has extended even into that household. He has used his chains as uh, as an opportunity. He has suffered well. He has used his suffering to advance the gospel. And then he finishes, the grace of of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. It's the same way he, he, he begins the letter. Paul begins with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and he ends with that same grace, because it's that grace that brings us into joy in Christ. It's God's favor upon us in that he has sacrificed his own son on our behalf that we might have the righteousness of Christ. That grace that was demonstrated towards us brings us into relationship with him. And so it's the two things that book in the letter. It begins with grace. Paul speaks the whole letter about this idea of grace and how much joy we can have in Christ. And then he ends with grace. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. We're adopted, we're accepted, we are part of the family of God. And so an opportunity for Paul to speak back to that. And so with that, we end the book of Philippians. Exciting journey, um, one we can look back on and, uh, and learn a lot from. I know, certainly know I learned a lot as we, as we looked into it, studied, sought the Lord over, over the text. So let's pray together and we'll respond in worship.
Lord, we're thankful for your kindness towards us. We're thankful for your goodness and faithfulness and your everlasting love. Lord, and we want to respond to you and worship now as we recognize your kindness and generosity towards us. And that while you were still sinners, Lord, you, you laid down your life for us. And so, Lord, would you, um, Lord, we ask that you would be glorified in, um, in our lives as we seek to live lives uh, full of the proclamation of the gospel and lives that are patterned after the gospel. And so, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, we pray that you would do these things uh, in our lives as we learn to be content in pursuing Christ. Lord, bring that contentment to us as we make Jesus our ultimate desire, our, our greatest treasure. And we love you. Amen.